Okay, going in five, four, three, two. I'm Heidi Berkey. And I'm Rachel Goebel. And this is the Ethical Storytelling Podcast. Gotta keep it fun. (laughs) Welcome to the Ethical Storytelling Podcast Power Dynamics Series. We have three incredibly special guests for this series who come from a diversity of backgrounds and cultures. Janelle Aldred is guest hosting these interviews, and we're grateful for her expertise and questions. Um, If you haven't already, please do go back and listen to our intro episode between Janelle and I talking about why this season in particular is so important and the thought behind this series. Today, we have the honor of talking with Lisa Sharon Harper, one of the smartest women I have ever met. From Ferguson to New York, Germany, South Africa to Australia and Brazil, Lisa Sharon Harper leads trainings that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. She's a prolific speaker, writer, and activist, and is also the founder and president of FreedomRoad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Lisa, thank you so much for saying yes to spending time with us today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Janelle. It's really great to be here. And so we're just going to dive straight into kind of the subject matter at hand. Let's um, do it. Let's just go for it. Let's because, do it. you know, it's so interesting because <laughs> you deal with and have dealt with and been in situations where you work around power dynamics. And mm-hmm. so thinking about power dynamics in storytelling, um, tell me mm-hmm. a little bit, because I know there was a situation where you were actually going in to see a situation that had been happening and you were going in on the ground, you'd seen it on the news, and then you actually go and see it. Mm-hmm. Tell me some of your thoughts about power dynamics in mm. that situation and how you kind of confronted that just to mm. just to kick us off nice and light. Well, I mean, I think that the, what you're talking about, if I'm right, you're talking about the, oppor- the time that I went into Ferguson. Yes. And so that was uh, 2014. And I think like... Most Americans on August 9th, we got the news report that Michael Brown had been shot and that um, that and that immediately that night, um, the police started to craft a story and narrative around the shooting. And my first thought was, how could they possibly know what happened? It's only been like an hour or two since it actually happened. And we already had the whole story. He reached inside the car. He struggled with um, with the officer, and so the officer shot him. And then that story began to change over the next few days, and next thing you know, there's people marching in the streets. And we all watched, we watched on TV when Michael Brown lay on the ground for four and a half hours mm-hmm. in the baking sun, mm-hmm. in, a, in the August sun uh, in St. Louis, which is, I mean, it was literally, it was a 90-degree-plus day that day. And he lay there for four and a half hours. So that's part of the reason why people who were on the ground saw it. They knew the larger story. They knew the context. Mm -hmm. And context means everything. And all I knew is that something was deeply wrong. We had a a larger context happening in the United States at the time. Um, At that time, one year before, we had had um, the exoneration, um, but it was a false exoneration, of Trayvon Martin's killer, yeah. um, George Zimmerman. 
And that one had a narrative that was shaped and reframed by um, by George Zimmerman's defense attorney. Um, we all stood and watched that attorney um, make uh, make the claim that Trayvon Martin had a weapon. The weapon was the ground he was walking on, yeah. the sidewalk that he was walking on, while in his pocket was just Skittles and some soda. And I think this speaks directly to why we're talking about power dynamics and storytelling. Yes, yes. And so much of our audience will be in the not-for-profit space. And so they might be thinking, well, what has this got to do with me? But this speaks exactly to how a person, an organization, a brand can take a story, take something that has happened, and for their own purposes, tell the story in a way that is useful to them. Yes. Well, that see, that happens all the time. And it's it's literally a part of the power dynamics that are at play when we talk about race relations in the United States in particular, but really any hierarchies of human belonging that we create in our societies, you have then hierarchies of power that keep those hierarchies in, in play. And narrative is the most powerful and most essential way that we maintain those hierarchies. So I was led, I felt led, just led to go to Ferguson. I didn't know people there. Um, I was I was a part of Sojourners at the time in in based in Washington, DC. So we began to call our networks and um, get connected to people on the ground. And so I was there, I think 11 days after Michael Brown died. Um, I landed in Ferguson and only a few days later had already spoken to several people who had already been on the ground and who who were organizing in the church. And so my work was to help build a bridge between the church, the multi-ethnic and white evangelical churches, Mm -hmm. believe it or not, in St. Louis into the larger hands up, don't shoot movement in Ferguson. And the number one way that we did it was through narrative, through story. So that, like three days after we landed, we actually created a story circle, what we call a talking circle, where faith leaders from across St. Louis came to sit in a circle and share their stories of their first interactions with the issue of race, their first interactions with with what happened here. Have they been on the ground? What have they seen? We went around and we did three separate rounds of people sharing their stories in three-minute segments. And how different were the stories that you were hearing mm-hmm. from the narrative that you'd seen before you got there? Oh my goodness. They were they were incredibly different. I mean, when I when I was watching on the news, I didn't know um that uh at least at that point, I didn't know that all of the neighbors had actually were not all, but there were many neighbors who had actually seen this go down. Um I didn't know the relationship that um that Michael Brown had had with uh, with the young man who was walking with him. They were good friends, right? And I didn't know that, um, uh, that uh, well, a lot of the details. Yeah. It's all, honestly, it's been like several years now. It's a little fuzzy, but <laughs> now, but at the time, there were so many details about it that I didn't know that actually made the difference. It made the difference. I mean, oh, one of the details was the fact that it was only recently that Michael Brown had actually um, converted, become a Christian, literally went down, knelt at the altar, wept, accepted Jesus into his life. And only minutes, like literally with less than an hour before he was killed on the street, had been ministering to a white man 
who was a gardener in the area. That later came out on a timeline, but then people knew in that neighborhood that that had happened. And, and so, you know, going to his funeral, hearing more of his story, hearing his auntie talk about him, hearing his mother talk about, about him and his character. There was no way he, this young man was going to reach into some cop car. He knew he black men on the street mm. know that you don't reach into some man's cop, cop car and try to grab his gun. He wasn't that kind of young man. So narrative offers context yeah. that creates different understanding. So the question of power and narrative is one that is fundamentally, I believe, centered in the question of intention. Yes. What is one's intention in telling the story in the first place? Is the intention empowerment? Is it to level the playing field of those hierarchies? Is that the intention? Or is the intention somehow to increase one's own power? Because the interesting thing about this story is there was nothing in it for the media to tell a particular story in real terms. So there's nothing in it for them, whether that whether he was a good guy or a bad guy. Well, it depends on the media source. Well, potentially, yes. Sorry, I'm coming from definitely a very Hello. British perspective where we, <laughs> we try to be we try to be slightly more unbiased. Sometimes we don't always succeed. Yeah, and but, that is not true in America. But it's kind of how do we define actually what is a healthy power dynamic in storytelling and what's mm-hmm. an unhealthy and like you say it's about intention mm-hmm. but in terms of them not knowing the story law enforcement has a narrative which they then take right. and tell people on the other end then consume mm-hmm. wholeheartedly for most mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. how do we get around that even in terms of people listening to stories and us unpicking what is true what is not true? Like, mm-hmm. how does the listener interact with that? I think that part of it is, it does go back to what sources do you find to be the ones that hold the greatest authority? If you believe that the police are the greatest authority of what happened, then you will believe the police officer, especially the police officer who was there, who was an eyewitness, who actually did the act, over another source. But if you are from that neighborhood and you know Michael Brown or you know young people like him, you have a cousin like Michael Brown, then he his word is going to have or his friend's words are going to have more authority than a police officer because you might understand you might have more context to understand the police officer's power dynamics in that neighborhood to begin with. Yeah. Like, for example, the whole reality that later, years later, after the Ferguson report came out, it became um, clear that the police department had been using people of African descent in that in the Ferguson community to keep the lights on in, in the state house, in the courthouse, in, in the municipality of Ferguson, because they would they would do exactly what that officer was about to do with Michael Brown. They would stop them for jaywalking. They would stop them for for just stepping off the curb. They would stop them for, as the the terminology goes, walking while black in St. Louis, in Ferguson. And that would then give them a ticket. And that ticket would then be have to be paid. And they would get multiple tickets per week, per year. So you're bilking 
people who are middle class, working class, some actually who are upper middle class. It's a very integrated neighborhood. It's not a poor neighborhood. It's a suburb. Mm. And you're bilking this black community in order to keep the lights on. And that was not happening in the white community within Ferguson. I mean, it's a very, you have a white Ferguson and a black Ferguson. The black Ferguson was the one where the police were targeting to get these these walking while black tickets. And so the State Department is the one that uncovered that. Well, that was not something that the police told us when they gave the police report. They didn't give us that context. But the people in the neighborhood knew that. The people in the neighborhood had a stack of 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 jaywalking tickets yeah. or had a stack of of walking while black tickets that they were then paying in order to keep the lights on in that in that city. So context, authority, who are our authorities as we come to the text? Yeah. Because everyone comes to storytelling with a bias. Yes. I'll come with a bias. I'll come with my view. You know, I tell a story as a black British female. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, that's, that's my worldview. And so my lens will, will come through that as you mm-hmm. will have your own bias. When does it become harmful? Yeah. For anybody? Well, I think it com- it becomes harmful when we when we suppose that we can talk for other people rather than actually um, we're doing the hard work, especially in the NGO space, doing the hard work of leveling the playing fields, which is why we say we exist. We say we exist in that space in order to help the world be a more just place. Well, justice requires a leveling of those hierarchies of human belonging. And there's nothing more basic than owning one's own story. People have, I mean, oppression at its at its highest um, uh, mark is is the owning of other people. Like the, yeah. the highest level of oppression is to own someone. And then it's to own their land. And then it's to own their story. And so what you need to do in order to in order to release um, that control and in order to um, reverse that oppression in order to do good yeah. is actually then to recognize they are human and as human beings, they have the calling from God and they have the right to own their own story, their own land and their own their own uh, resources. And how do we tackle that? Because it's interesting, isn't it? As you say, these are people who say they are trying to do good. They mm-hmm. say... I'm doing this because I want to level the playing field. I want a better world. I want to be want to be part of that better world. And yet sometimes they're the same people who are still really holding these power dynamics in play. Because is it that there's just something innate in our humanity that needs to be on top? What is the barrier that actually stops the people who say they want to do it? And sometimes I genuinely believe in their hearts. They genuinely believe that. What is the thing that stops them from actually stepping over that line from knowing Mm -hmm. to doing? Well, I mean, I think that there's a real, I'm not sure. People have said, well, it's just human. I think on one level, maybe it's human. Um, I come at this from a faith perspective. And so I really do believe, I believe that um, that we were not created for relationships that were um, characterized by domination. I believe we were created for relationships that were equitable, where all flourish. But it is our penchant to dominate that actually breaks the world. And so I just believe that, that all things are, it's possible for us to change 
the world by changing how we relate to each other in the world. So at the very least, if you are not aware of of these power dynamics that might be at work, at play within your workspace, with between coworkers, and then between the organization and the community that it tells it serves, the moment that you become conscious of it is when you become responsible to take action to change it. And I think that's such a good point because I think there are two words for me that have become kind of cop-out words. Mm-hmm. Well, three, uh, technically. One of them is two words, unconscious bias. Right. I think that has become a big cop-out for yeah. kind of, well, it's just all these unconscious biases that are going on. But as you mm-hmm. say, now you're conscious, you're, so responsible. you're responsible. And the yeah. other word is privilege. Yes. Oh, don't tell me about privilege. I, uh, I think privilege is... Oh, <laughs> no, this is I'm what we're so here, done we're here with to that talk. Word. I think that they've become two cop-out phrases yes. that actually now have become hiding phrases. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we help people to actually understand what to do with that? Well, I actually think... I Look, unconscious bias is real. Um, when we talk about implicit bias, that's the psychological term. I mean, just to be on the same playing field when yeah. we all under have same, similar understanding here, implicit bias, everybody has it. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing that we do when we make associations that that cut down the number of steps it takes for us to actually process information so that if we have a chair sitting in front of us, we don't have to say this has four legs, a base and a back. Therefore it is a chair. No, we just look at it and go chair. Right. But it's when we do that with regard to the hierarchies of human belonging, um, whether it's race or gender or class or religion or sexual orientation or gender identification or nationality, there's all kinds of hierarchies that exist in this world. And as a result, um, that implicit bias, those associations we've made, really, we're just trying to limit the amount of time that it takes to, to process information. But those those biases have impacts. Yeah, Societies are formed in relationship to those biases. Laws are passed by those biases. Those biases form laws and those biases are actually um, uh, create the um, disparities that that rise from those laws. Um, so what the Kerwan Institute says, they are they are a really, really great institute um, located um, in the heart of America, I believe Ohio. Mm-hmm. And the Kerwan Institute, what they say is that it's it's there are many ways that we can actually lower our implicit bias, you know, barometer. Yeah. Um, when you take the um, Harvard associ- Implicit Association Test, which I recommend everybody on that. this thing does, <laughs> everybody has to do it, because what they say is that it's not possible for you to lower that score if you're not aware. We can't become less biased until we're willing to look at our bias. So they recommend that you take it. Once you take it, um, once you take that test, there are several things you can do to lower that score. Um, the first thing is to grow your empathy, to grow your capacity for empathy, to learn to walk in the other's shoes. And I wanted to say, it's impossible to walk in the other's shoes without actually meeting the other, without actually talking to the other, without watching the other, without listening to the other, without, honestly, without honoring the humanity of the other. And do you think, because as you're saying that, what's coming to my mind is actually often when we're helping people, are we honoring them? Because actually we feel that the helping is the honoring. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So there's that's a whole another conversation. Quite honestly, no, that's a, that's a, that's a, it is. It's a kind of a deep conversation yeah. because you know there's that book when helping hurts and all of that. I actually think that there's a need for all of it. There's a need for charity. Yeah. Because there are people who you know they just need it right now. Yeah. Like they don't they don't need somebody giving them a class on X Y Z when they just need a pillow to put their head on at night yeah. or they don't know where their next meal is coming from. That soup kitchen is a lifesaver at that point. In America, food stamps, you yeah. know, um, that is a lifesaver at that point. And that's necessary. Um, uh, Red Cross is necessary in the midst of humanitarian disaster. We can't, you know, just you let people get around lay there it. and no. grow more red blood cells, right? So, no, so you know, so, so charity is necessary. Um, but also... The church has, I mean, and, and the church has a big big deal to do with that. But also development, long-term development has a place, um, giving alternatives to oppressive systems. But the last thing I'd say would be is also necessary is that the work to actually change the structure itself so that the alternative structures aren't even needed, mm. so that we can actually work through governance to be able to make just laws and just systems and just um, um, access to the basic needs of life, like food and shelter and air and water. So when we have a lack of those basic things in different areas, and we do, mm. then we, you know that there's been some unjust lawmaking happening in that, that uh, town or city. And usually that unjust lawmaking is guided by narratives, yeah. by narratives that have been slanted um, to benefit one people group or one sector in the in the town or city or state or nation at the expense of others. So the thing to do in that case is to let the voices and the stories that come from the bottom rise mm. so that we can hear what's really happening there. And it's as we empower or recognize the power, rather, of those voices that things have the greatest possibility of changing. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks for taking time to listen and explore what it means to ethically tell stories with us. Make sure to visit ethicalstorytelling.com for more practical resources on ethical storytelling, including blog posts, new podcasts, and upcoming webinars. Please tell your friends about ethical storytelling. It's small and a labor of love, and we all do this because we want to see change. So help us spread the word with your family and friends. Before we say goodbye, we'd love to thank everyone that helped on the show this week. You all, the listeners, for tuning in. Kyle Hara for editing each episode. Lauren Ellis for web support. And music by Brooke for free. We'll see you next week.